Welcome back, everyone, and thank you very much for joining our next issue of Northern Lights. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Helen C. Helen grew up in Manchester. She does such a variety of stuff. I'm, I'm just struggling sometimes to think how she manages to fit it all in. So she's got an MBA, MBE. She's a restaurant owner. She's published eight books. One of the books was turned into a play. She's been on Dragon's Den. She's been on The F Word. She went to Cambridge, qualified as a lawyer. She's now a partner in a legal firm. Um, she's built a business around the restaurant as well with a twin sister selling uh, sauces. Um, so someone who's just touched so many different parts of uh, of society, actually, and also does so many different things. So Helen, welcome. It's it's an absolute pleasure having you here. Um, now, do you ever do you ever stop and think back on all the different things you've done? And how do, how do you, you know, what's the underlying theme through all of that? Um, I don't actually stop and think about it, Armageddon. I just, um, you know, do life and, and enjoy what I do. But, you know, the list you've set out, I kind of, I'm thinking now and I'm thinking, wow, that's, that sounds like a lot. But really, it's not. It's, it's stages of your life. You know, 20 years is a long time. And, you know, people do various projects, people move to various firms. I had a very happy existence within PwC in Manchester at Barbara Raleigh Square. Um, that was about 2003. Um, but, you know, life goes on and you, you just keep moving with the opportunities that are presented to you. And for me, you know, what I guess is the kind of two threads that have kept me moving is number one, my, my passion for food and the family business, Sweet Mandarin. And secondly, my professional life as a lawyer. So currently I'm a partner in the corporate team with Charles Russell Speechley's in London. But thankfully they allow me to work remotely, so I'm still based in Manchester. And Helen, that's that's a tremendous journey. So so you'll forgive me because what I want to do is to jump to different parts of it. But for the moment, why don't we start right at the beginning? So, you know, how your family came to the UK, how you set yourself up, you know, the importance of the family values and the and, and approaches and how that's kind of contributed to some of the things you've done later on. So just just talk to me about being a first generation Chinese growing up in Manchester. Well, my grandmother, Lily Kwok, she came over to Manchester, uh, UK, in the 1950s. So I would consider her, actually, as the first generation. And then my mum, she came over when she was 11, and she helped my grandmother in the restaurant. Uh, that was the 1970s. No, 1960s, actually. And then I was born in 1977 also in the food industry um, where we, we still are to this day and I guess you know being a British born Chinese person what I always found as I was growing up was that I was really the only Chinese family in my school uh, in the neighborhood because I realized that the Chinese community are very much spread out and quite sporadic as to where they locate. So I guess it was quite a, a lonely existence because I really didn't feel like I ever fitted in. I wanted to be like my 
um, friends, um, you know, who were mainly British. And so much so that I even put a peg on my nose because I just finished reading the book Little Women by Louise May Alcott. And every morning my nose was just as flat as it was the day before. Um, and I guess these identity crises, if you call it that, is what has pushed me forward to try and understand a bit about me, understand where I fit into this world and how I can protect my family. Because when you are an ethnic minority uh, growing up, you know, in Middleton, which is very much working class, um, you really don't have much expectations upon your life. Uh, all my mum and dad really wanted me to do was to get a shop, uh, you know, a shop um, job in, say, you know, Top Shop or, you know, the local um, parade in Middleton. But they'd never thought about university. They'd never thought that we would become a lawyer and my other sisters being in finance and in engineering. So I guess for us, and in particular me, what made me think slightly differently was that I felt slightly out of my own skin. I wanted to be something different. I didn't want to be continually poor. And I, I actually used books as a way to escape and to, to learn about other worlds and how other people did things. And what we would have to do growing up was we would finish school, change out of our uniform and into our aprons and help out in the chippy. And for me, you know, I love doing that because that's all I really knew. But one day, um, and it was a Saturday, I experienced a racial assault um, against my mum. So this thug had come into the chippy on a Saturday night and demanded a bag of chips for free. And my mom, being the principal lady that she was, and she is, refused to give it for free. So this thug then punched my mom, and I just watched her hit the wall. Her glasses had broken, and she slumped down, and I felt totally helpless at the age of 11. After he'd done that assault, he then, you know, came out with a tirade of racial comments, things that I don't want to repeat here, but, you know, the sentiment was basically, go home, go back to your home. And I thought to myself, you know, whilst I don't feel comfortable in my own skin and I don't really fit into my um, school or, you know, Middleton, I don't know any other home. This is my home. Why is he saying to me, go home? Where am I going to go? And so at that point, when I was 11, it really got me thinking, what can I do to protect my family? If I'm continually going to be stuck in this chippy, we will be, you know, at risk facing people that are violent, but not all of, not everybody's violent, but, you know, the occasional person. And I really didn't want that for my family. And that's, I think, the turning point for me to, to really kind of take it up a notch and see what I could do. But at the age of 11, really what you could only do is focus at school. 
And up to this point, I was really very much anti-school. I didn't enjoy it. I'd be bunking off and things like that. And But because of that moment, I thought the only thing I can control is to listen to the teacher and see what I can do to get out of this predicament. And so I did. And I worked really hard and I focused on the classes. And that is when I decided I want to be a lawyer. So I know my rights and how to protect me and my family. And then in terms of going to Cambridge, my dad said, if you don't get into Cambridge or Oxford, you'll be going to Manchester University. And whilst you're at university, you're going to keep working in the chippy. And at that point, you know, I've done my time and I thought I need to get out of here. So I decided I want to go for Cambridge. And, you know, I thank God that I got in. And that was the beginning of my legal career, I guess. I mean, there's, there's so much there and there's so much, how can I put it, there's so much life learning there. Um, and it, it does sound like some of the key drivers were you, for you were on the back of actually some not very pleasant things, you know. Um, what I did want to, what I did want to ask you was, um, you, just going back to something you were saying at the beginning of that, even before the incident with with, with your mother and, and later on, you, you mentioned this concept of fitting in, right? And I, I'm not entirely sure it's it's disappeared. Um, now I grew up probably you know many years before you did in, in in Yorkshire, and we were slightly different because the the Indian Pakistani community we all congregated in one space or one area. So what we weren't dispersed around the country, we were kind of uh, in, in in groups, large groups, and, and as a consequence, you get all the, the advantages of that, but you kind of get some of the disadvantages of that. But what I'm really interested in is, when did you move from trying to fit in to being yourself and being happy with what who you were and, and, and what you were bringing? So w w did that happen over time with a particular instance, or did you just, you know, just sort of wake up and say, you know what? You know, I, I'm not going to try and change myself. I, I'm going to stick with who I am, and I really like who I am as I am. And this is the this is what I'm going to present to the world. That's a very good question, Armagan. I mean, I know that I probably will never fit in, but the bothering me point has subsided very much down to pretty much nil. And what I found as I was working harder at school and getting lost in books is that the not fitting in part started to be less of a bother to me as I was growing up. Then in my professional career, and in particular at PwC, having a foot in both cultures of being a Chinese person and also being a British person actually I found became an advantage because whilst I was at PwC, I helped to set up the China desk, which encourages inbound business coming into the UK and assisting UK businesses going outbound to China. And that has echoed throughout my professional career because at Charles Russell Speechley's, I'm the lead in London for the China desk. So, I guess my initial thoughts when I was growing up thinking, oh, I, I really don't want to be Chinese. I've realized actually it's the wrong kind of way to think. 
because I'm Chinese and also British, I can see things in different ways. And I can help my colleagues um, with understanding different cultures and different ways of doing business. And I can communicate with, you know, the, the East and the West, basically, and, and make it work. For me, that's a very interesting um, dynamic. To not fit in initially has actually now become my advantage. Yeah, no, I understand. So, so if we were to combine your experience in Manchester, your experience in Cambridge, and your law experience, what advice would you give people from ethnic minorities, diverse, BAME background, what advice would you give them uniquely because of their heritage on how they, how they should think about developing themselves, embedding themselves in, in the society here, contributing? And, and actually also, the, you know, the pride bit, you know, about their ability to combine. I mean, interesting the conversations I have with a lot of my family members is, you know, you, you were talking about, you know, different dimensions. Uh, you know, I, I've got one where, you know, we, we are of Pakistani heritage. We have the, the, the brilliance of, you know, growing up and being part of British society. And we have a, a cultural, you know, so we have the Pakistani cultural, the British society, and then we also have our faith you know, whatever faith people use to get them solace. So I would say, actually, when you blend the three, you end up with something really quite special, which I think is what you're saying as well. Um, uh, but then the next step from that is what advice would one give on the back of that that can help people either in their careers or, or their development? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we have very um, similar backgrounds in terms of family being so central to it and the advice I would give to wannabe lawyers especially from ethnic minorities is that you are equally as good as anybody else to go for your dream um, and sometimes the biggest obstacle is oneself it's not the outside world it's, it's your expectations of yourself and what you think you're capable of and I think until that's been unleashed you will never try and go for it because you feel like you're not going to get it anyway and one thing that I learned from my first job at Clifford Chance was from my boss his name was Saul Greenberg and you, this was the first time in 2000s where offices were open plan and I had a little corner office desk within the office, sorry, um, that faced the corridor so everybody could see my screen. And in the 2000s, the internet was just about coming on. This sounds so old. And I had a Google account, so I wanted to like look at things on Google. But I had to minimise it so nobody could see what I was doing. And every time my boss walked back, I would minimise the screen. And I think he realized what I was doing. And he said to me, Helen, look at this room. So I looked at it and there was probably about 30 people uh, all tapping away. And he said, do you think anybody really cares about what you're looking at on the computer? And I said, no, they don't even realize I stood up to look at them. He said, exactly. Nobody really cares. So you don't need to keep worrying about what people think about you. And that probably was one of the best lessons I ever learned. 
if you worry so much about, oh, will I, you know, do well? What does that person think of me? I better not do it in case they think of this so badly of me. Actually, you'll never get anything done. And after that, that also helped to unlock my confidence to realise, actually, we weren't very long hours. We were allowed to go on the internet now and again. And to, to do the best work you can, but not lose yourself, that's the advice I'd give. So valuable. I, I'm, you reminded me. I mean, I, I remember one of the earliest conversations I had in my career, and and I don't know why, but I I always overtried earlier. And what I mean by that is, you know, if it, if if it was a tennis match, I'd be trying to hit an ace with every service, or try and hit an ace, or or, or a game winner with every shot. I remember someone, uh, my manager, coming to me, and he he, he said, you know what, Armageddon, you. Sometimes you just need to get the ball over the net. You know, every shot doesn't have to be an ace, and every shot doesn't have to be a winner. Then you've got to choose your moments. And actually, that really relaxed me. And one of the things it did uh, for me was it, it made me focus on the next step or the next shot. I wasn't then continually thinking about the third step, the fourth step. And actually, if, if I found that if, if one focuses on the next step, that does take quite a lot of pressure away because you only have to you know, depending on what type of shot you need, whether it's a, an ace or an over the net, you can actually calibrate the next step. It's a lot more difficult tr now trying to calibrate the third and the fourth step. So I found that that bit of advice earlier in my career, I found that really, really helpful. I've also had some really great people helping me, you know, um, from, you know, lots of backgrounds, you know, and I, and I think that's made a really, really big difference. Um, Helen, just, just moving on, Oh, just moving on a bit. Um, so you wrote a book called Sweet Mandarin. That was then turned into a play, which I think you actually went and saw as well. What, what brought about the writing of the book? Because I can see how you moved from some of the early incidents in your life to moving into law and the importance of that. But I'm just trying to think what what then made you want to write this book, which obviously has been you know very successful, and then you've gone on to write other books, um, you know, various cookbooks and so forth. But The Sweet Mandarin, how, how, what made you write that? What, what was it within you that you wanted to, to get out and share? Um, that's my first book, Amagan. And it's named after our restaurant, Sweet Mandarin. And we opened Sweet Mandarin in 2004. And as part of the kind of setup process to open up this restaurant, we had put together our recipes as to what we were going to be cooking for the customers. And Sweet Mandarin offers family recipes predominantly. Um, and each of these recipes has little stories. It talks about my grandmother Lily and her curry that she'd created on the journey from Hong Kong all the way to the UK via ship. It this talks. Is chicken, this is a chicken curry. This is the chicken curry. Yeah, one I tried the other day with you. Yes. I can highly recommend. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. And you know we we have Mabel, my mum's clay pot chicken, and that is a dish which uh, talks about when my mum first came to the UK and she felt very very angry at my grandmother, her mother for taking her out of a very comfortable existence in Hong Kong, where she was 
enjoying the weather and her friends and her grandmother and coming to a, a place which just constantly rained, as she says. And she was like, what is this food? And sometimes food gives you that sense of um, home comfort. And that was her, her comfort dish. So we had these recipes with stories behind them, ready to go in a, in a, in a file. And it was actually that manuscript I wanted to create into a cookbook. And uh, one of my friends, Jessica, she's a literary agent. And she said, okay, I'll go and pitch this book for you. And she sent it off to various places in London. And Random House reported back and said, look, lovely cookbook, but we don't want the cookbook. We would like the stories behind the food. And I was like, um, nope, I don't think that's the angle I want to go for. Then they explained to me, um, Helen, you don't know this but there are no British-born Chinese authors. I was like, that can't be correct. This is the 21st century. Somebody must have written about the journey from Guangzhou, China, to Hong Kong, into the UK, which actually is 90% of the immigrants of the first wave of the Chinese. And then they explained to me, look, you've got Amy Tan, who's from America, You've got Shinran and Jung Chang who are from China. There is nobody of um, you know British uh, origin who has written about you know the Chinese journey. I was flabbergasted. So part of me felt, you know what, I've got to do this because we are already known as a silent minority. Soon we'll be eradicated from history for not even having documented this path. Um, Helen, can I just move you to something that, you know, I'm fascinated with the, the Dragon's Den. So you, you went, I mean, there's a number of things that I'm really interested in, in here. Is one is, you know, you were named the top local Chinese by Gordon Ramsay. And there was a lot of restaurants that were involved in that. So obviously, you, you know, you went through a whole journey there. You went to Dragon's Den for some funding. You didn't get it the first time. You then went again, you know, I think the first one was Ready Meals and the second one was Sources. You did, did then get the funding for that. But both of those journeys, you didn't really need to go through, you know, uh, necessarily. You know, you, you could have used, uh, those are very visible uh, forums, aren't they? There are less visible forums to try to achieve the same end. So what, what drove you towards both of these? And is it appropriate to say they were the visibility was part of it or was the visibility just purely by accident? Well, for the F word with Gordon Ramsay, we were called up by one of his production team and said, do you want to go on one of Gordon's shows? And I actually said, no, thanks, because all I really knew him for was Kitchen Nightmares. And we were certainly not that. And I wasn't going to put my business under the radar for that. Then they kind of called back again and said, look, it's not that show. It's a new format that we're doing and it's a competition to look for the best within your um, industry. And also your customers have nominated you. So we would like you to have a think about it and, and come down and have a go at the competition. So that's when we thought, oh, okay, that sounds okay. And we did. We didn't know there were 10,000 other restaurants going for the same accolade. We didn't know that we we're going to have very little sleep and be literally under the microscope um, during this competition and that there'd be 
a huge number of mystery diners coming in and out of the restaurant for periods of time. So we had cooked the salt and chili squid. We cooked Mabel's clay pot chicken. We'd done a banana fritter. Um, there was some taste tests, some mystery tests, all different tests. And in the end, we'd won the best local Chinese on Gordon Ramsay's F word. And that was an amazing moment of our lives because, you know, we don't really go in for competitions, but to get Gordon Ramsay to say, your food's good, it's, you know, you feel quite happy about it. And we don't really watch much TV either, so we didn't realise the impact of the TV when it hit. And, you know, me and Lisa looked at each other when we had queues of people waiting outside for us to open. And literally, by lunchtime, we had no more food left at night time. That's how busy it was. The Dragon's Den uh, features was actually my twin sister Lisa's idea. She realised actually nobody was doing gluten-free sauces. And every single Chinese sauce that was being sold had either soy sauce, which is gluten, had been thickened with wheat or flour, which was gluten, and therefore could not be sold to the celiac market. And that market was, you know, worth a few billion quid. So she thought, actually, we've got an idea here. We're doing it already. We know the recipes. We know it works. We know people love the taste. I will learn to bottle it. Yeah. And, and just, just sticking with, because well, I think what's interesting to my mind is, and, and then actually to be to be fair, you know, you've been recognised for your contribution to food and drinks because you got an MBE in 2014. So actually, if we think about the, I guess it's not just individual things, but just the breadth of what you've done, right? Whether you sort of recognise it now or whether you recognised it along the way is, is really broad. Most people wouldn't go across all those different things. The, the, th the thing I, I also wanted to ask was, um, in terms of, so let, let's, we're just sort of thinking about advice to people who are setting off in their career, or they're coming to key moments in their career, you know, whether it's promotions, or they're thinking about which area to go into, or they've just been hired as a graduate, what sort of advice would you have to, to people who are just embarking on their career? based on your experience of of both corporate life but also as a as a running a private business what, what things should people focus on i think very simple things number one turn up for the job turn up for your shift that you promise uh turn up on time if you have to physically be there and if you're going to promise to deliver something on a certain date honor that promise because if you don't, the goodwill and the trust gets breached immediately. And I know it's very simple things, but you know, I've seen <laughs> it not being done. And you know, if you're being asked to give someone a chance again and again, I think everybody's patience wears slightly thin. That's the first thing. If you can master that, then the second thing is find something that you love doing. So I believe people usually act out of two emotions. One is love and one is fear. So you either love your job and that's why you go to work every day or you go to work every day because you fear not having any money and 
therefore can't live your lifestyle. And if it's the second camp you're in, then I think you will find work or whatever you want to do a real um, chore and not actually excel in it, but, you know, you could create antagonistic relationships, you could have a spin-off at home, you know, it's kind of got a bearing on everything that you do. And if you can't find something that you love doing, then I say create something that you love doing and become self-employed. Listen, Helen, it's been an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I just want to thank you for all your, your time today, your, your insights. And I must admit, I've, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's done the breadth of what you've done and the achievements and the recognition. Um, no, just fantastic and, and a real inspiration as well. So, Helen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Armageddon. It's been lovely to speak with you. And, you know, congratulations on your post in the North. Thank you very much. Thanks, Helen. Thank you.